0: Strangers, the Let's Read podcast centers around narrating true scary experiences from real people just like yourself, ranging from creepy stalkers to paranormal encounters with the other side, with the goal to lull you into beautiful nightmares. Join narrator Let's Read as his sultry tones guide you through some of the most terrifying experiences one can imagine. Whether you're on the go or stuck at home, exercising or doing homework, chores, or just trying to relax, the Let's Read podcast will help you zone out the world and hone in on horrors experienced by others' first-person encounters. Let's Read has been described as a human ambient with the ability to declutter even the most anxious mind with merely his voice. And with over 600,000 subscribers on YouTube and podcast platforms, one can begin to understand why. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening now. It was early spring of 1922, and the last clutches of winter still hung in the air. Deep in the heart of Bavaria, in a small town surrounded by the black forest, on a farm blanketed in snow, six bodies lay for days, undiscovered their brutally murdered corpses would offer little clue as to what happened to them. For at least three of them, their deaths marked the end of a grim existence. Tucked away on this remote farm, far from prying eyes, under the thumb of a monster. One of the victims was not even three years old. Another had only just arrived to the farm that morning. All of them passed in a most ominous scene. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who certainly understands the desire to want to live as far away from other humans as possible, but also knows that comes with an increased risk of being murdered. This week, we'll pull on our lederhosen and feathered caps and take a trip to Germany around the turn of the 20th century. Sadly, we won't be going to Oktoberfest with the Griswolds, though. Nine. We will go where one family's turmoil ended abruptly in a sextuple murder that to this day has never been solved. But before we arrive back at that scene of those bodies scattered with no clear clue as to why, we have to talk about the Grubers and the complicated dynamics within their home. And warning, strangers, this episode contains mentions of incest and rape. The Gruber Farm was a small dairy farm in Hinterkaifeck, Bavaria. I promise there won't be a test later on, but just for some informational purposes, Bavaria became one of the founding states of the German Empire in 1871, which will become important. Just put it in your pocket with your Schnitzel and save it for later. According to the website hinterkaifeck.net, the farm's, quote, nearest neighbors lived 500 meters away the next largest town was 2.5 kilometers away, end quote. So, not the most remote, but pretty remote. After the death of her first husband, the matron of the farm, Kazilla Assam, married a farmhand named Andreas Gruber. A year after they were married, the Grubers welcomed to the world their first and only child who would survive infancy, Victoria. Nothing noteworthy came out of the Gruber farm for the next 27 years, until Victoria married Carl Gabriel, a young man from a farm less than a mile away. About five months after they married in 1914, Carl was shipped off to fight in World War I. He died in battle only four months after that and missed, by only a month, the birth of his daughter, Kazilla, named after Victoria's mother. But before little Cazilla was a year old, her mother Victoria and her grandfather, old Andreas Gruber, were arrested for engaging in incest from the years of 1907 to 1910. It was their neighbor, Lorenz Schiebebauer, who reported the pair. What proof Lorenz might have had is unclear. However, the incest was a not-so-well-kept secret with the neighbors and a popular topic of discussion in the nearby town. Andreas served one year behind bars. Victoria served one month. And even though Victoria was an adult, it's hard to imagine she would be arrested for this same thing today, given the likelihood that Victoria was being abused by her father. Whether or not she consented, the power dynamic between a parental figure and their child is off balance. And then, four years later in 1919, Victoria gave birth again, this time to a son. And while Victoria claimed the father was her former accuser, Lorenz Schiebebauer, Lorenz not only denied he was the boy's father, but again accused Victoria and Andreas of incest, claiming the boy was, in fact, a product of that incest. Oddly enough, apparently Lorenz wanted to marry Victoria despite knowing her past with her father and despite literally being the reason she had to serve time in prison for it. Call me a hopeless romantic, but accusing a woman of incest and getting her arrested is probably not the best way to win her heart. The family's maid at the time, Crescenz Riga, would later tell police... I
1: knew that the young farmer's wife had sex with her biological father. On the occasion of going to church, some young boys pointed out to me that the old farmer was having sexual relations with the young woman, that is, with his daughter. I hadn't heard anything about this before, and I didn't notice that the two had exchanged affections, but I was still curious at the time, and paid particular attention in the years that followed. One day, it was in the spring of 1921, I came to the barn and wanted to help old Gruber load a water barrel. When I got into the barn, I found Gruber lying on the straw just having sex with his daughter,
0: Victoria. It's weird that Riga hadn't heard of the previous accusations and prison sentences of her employers. Anyway, Riga also told police that at least once, Andreas Gruber had actively prevented a man from courting Victoria. It was a farmer's son,
1: but old Gruber managed to prevent this by saying that Victoria wasn't at home. When the visitor asked about Victoria's expected return, Gruber said she wouldn't be home until evening. In reality, however, Gruber had locked his daughter Victoria Gabriel in the closet with her consent.
0: Locked her in the closet with her consent? Again, consent is a very murky thing in the Gruber Gabriel family. Also, just locking people in the closet, consensually or not, feels like kind of bad problem solving. No, this behavior is absolutely controlling and abusive, for sure. But can I just point out how funny it is that this guy came by and was like, I want to marry your daughter. And Andreas was like, sorry, bro, she's out. She won't be back for a few hours. And the guy was like, oh, well, I guess I missed my chance. Like, just come back tomorrow? Apparently, after learning that Victoria's husband had been killed at war, Andreas said quite publicly, quote, My daughter doesn't need a man anymore. That's what I'm here for. End quote. Uh, no, that's definitely not what you're there for, friendo. This fucking guy. But Andreas' abusive behavior wasn't the only creepy thing happening at the farm at Hinterkaifeck. Sometime in 1921, at what Cresenz Riga called potato harvesting time, which according to the potato harvest calendar on harvestatable.com could literally be any time of the year depending on what kind of potato you're growing, so who the fuck knows when she was talking about? Honestly, the things I Google for this podcast. Riga began complaining of weird goings-on. My chamber door
1: often suddenly opened at 12 o'clock in the night, but I never saw anyone even though the door was locked. I couldn't lock my chamber
0: door. Wait, does this mean her bedroom door could only be locked from the outside? Please don't tell me that's what this means. This has to be, like, a weird mistranslation, right? After this spook was almost every
1: day at the same hour, I got scared and decided to give up my job. Of course, I told the Gruber's and Victoria Gabrielle about this
0: spook. And just a quick note here for those of you with itchy Twitter fingers. I know spook is a problematic term. This is an actual quote from a person in the 1920s in Bavaria. So, you know, context.
1: Old Gruber answered me at the time, I don't need to be afraid. Maybe one day I'll die without confession and communion. But after knowing the way of life with his daughter, I replied that perhaps without
0: the last sacraments he would have to die. This is such a classically narcissistic reply to someone saying they're afraid. This dude's like, whatever, it doesn't affect me. A hundred bucks says he was the old-timey Bavarian equivalent of a libertarian. I also love that she was like, uh, no, bro, you're definitely dying without Jesus's forgiveness. Riga also reported that in addition to this ghost or whatever it was opening her bedroom door in the middle of the night, she also started receiving an unwanted human visitor as well.
1: The farmer's son, Josef Tala, whom I know by sight, came from a farm near Beethoven at night to my chamber windows. When Josef Tala came to my room window, I didn't open my window. He knocked on the window several times and repeatedly called,
0: Ho! To be clear, I'm pretty sure this means hello, not like he was knocking on her window in the middle of the night calling her a Ho! After I heard the leaves rustling
1: outside, I asked Tala who else was with him. He said that nobody was with him. When I pointed out to him that I could hear the leaves rustling as if someone were walking in the leaves, he said that I was dreaming. Then he asked me where the young farmer's wife slept. I replied that I didn't know and that he should ask the farmer's wife himself. Tala then said, Right, she's in the marriage bed and her father is sleeping next to her. Sick burn, dude. He also said that the small child, that is the boy, was lying in the pram and the girl was lying in a cot at the foot of the bedstead. I told Tala that I had never been in my employer's bedroom and therefore didn't know where and how they slept. Tala also told me that the owners of Hinterkaifeck had a lot of money in the house. The money would be hidden in a roasting tube in the oven during the day and under the bed drawer at night. I told Tala that I was not aware of this fact either. After Tala left, I got up and went into the kitchen. I looked after him from the kitchen window and noticed that there was another man with him. The two men first walked away in the direction of the veil, but then turned right again and stood in the middle of the stable and looked at the engine house from there. They also turned their eyes upwards. I can't say how long the men stayed there because before that I went back to my
0: chamber. How these guys knew this much information about the Gruber family is totally unclear. And perhaps the craziest thing about all of this is that she reported it to her employers before she quit and they ignored her. Pardon me? I just told you some rando knows you keep your money in a pan in your oven and knows where you sleep and you're just like, whatever? By the morning when the family discovered the mysterious footprints in the snow clearly leading to the house and absolutely none leading away from the house, it was too late for the Grubers to heed those warnings. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at LinkedIn.com slash spoken. That's LinkedIn.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. On the morning of Saturday, April 1st, 1922, the Sharofsky brothers, local coffee sellers, stopped by the farm at Hinter sometime between noon and 2 p.m. to make their regular delivery. One of the brothers later reported
2: We repeatedly knocked on the windows of the house and made noise, but no one heard. And then walked around the house and looked through the windows into the kitchen and the stables, but couldn't see anyone. Just the dog and that cattle made noise. All the doors were locked except for the engine house gate, which was left open. We then left and informed the local residents in the village about our perception.
0: That same day, little Kazilla didn't show up for school. I guess she had school on Saturdays, and the next day, the family was absent at church. On Monday, April 3rd, Kazilla was once again absent from school, and the mailman noticed that baby Joseph's pram wasn't in the kitchen like it usually was when he came to deliver the mail. Apparently, Joseph liked to watch the mailman deliver the mail. Hey, man, there wasn't much else for a baby to do on a remote farm in Bavaria in 1922. It was probably that or, I don't know, play in the cow shit? The mailman reported that the kitchen door was half open as well, but apparently he didn't go in or call out to the family to see if they were home. The next morning, on April 4th, a repairman showed up to the farm around 9am and waited for about an hour for anyone to greet him.
2: When I got there, I wanted to go through the garden door that was next to the barn into the yard, but I couldn't get in because it was locked. I then walked around the house to be able to get into the house from the back. Since the front door was locked from behind, I looked in through the kitchen window and through the stable window to see if I couldn't see anyone, which wasn't the case. I heard nothing but cows roaring and a dog barking.
0: Just to make sure you caught that, this guy said basically all the doors to the house were locked, right? Because he says he checked the kitchen window, and just the day before, the mailman said the kitchen door was half open. So now, presumably, it was closed and locked.
2: I noticed that the barn door was wide open, but I didn't go into the barn because I thought to myself, you're not supposed to be in there. But I noticed that nothing was stirring in the barn after it was wide open. I looked superficially into the barn at a distance of about... Uh, Three meters, but didn't notice anything. I then walked along the house and to the front door. The dog was attached to the front door, barking terribly. I didn't pay any attention to the dog either, because you're used to the dog barking at you when you go to a farm.
0: This guy had no idea the trauma he spared himself from not going into the barn. And that poor dog, it seems, was desperately trying to tell him something. Because later that same day, on April 4th, word had finally gotten around that things were awfully quiet over at the Kaifek farm, and none other than Lorenz Schiebebauer, Victoria's accuser slash lover slash possible baby daddy, put together a search party and went over to the farm to see what was going on. One source said he went with a couple neighbors. Another said he brought his adult sons along. One of the men, Michael Pohl, would later tell police.
2: From the engine house, we then blew open the barn door, and we all three went into the barn. An unleashed cow looked out through the open barn door. Schieberbauer went ahead and towards the stable door. I saw him stumble a bit. I followed him immediately and searched with my feet on the ground because it was already a bit dark. I bumped into something and then said to the two companions, there's something there.
0: And again, remember that earlier that day, the repairman said the barn door was open. Now, apparently, it needed to be blown open. When Lorenz went further into the barn, he saw a foot peeking out from the hay and pulled on it. The body that emerged was that of Andreas Gruber. They then quickly discovered three more bodies nearby. There was the matriarch, Cazilla, her daughter, Victoria, and Victoria's daughter, Cazilla. Lawrence apparently moved the body of little Cazilla for some reason. From there, the party went into the house. How they got in, I don't know. All the doors had been locked earlier in the day when the repairman came by. They found two-year-old Joseph dead in his pram in Victoria's bedroom, and another woman lying dead partially underneath her own bed in the maid's bedroom. That woman was Maria Baumgartner, the family's new maid, whose first day on the job was the same day she and the family were murdered. Witnesses later told investigators that Lorenz's behavior was odd. One man from the initial search party said this.
2: In the engine house which was tied into the barn, there was a tub of cured meat. Shibabawa asked me to take some of the meat away and eat it.
0: I'm sorry, what? He asked the guy to take the meat away and eat it? My dude, you want me to eat tub meat that's been sitting near a bunch of dead bodies for God knows how long? Are you, like, okay? This guy also told investigators,
2: When we were shown through the rooms by Shibabawa, He showed us an empty wallet in the bedroom. This was on the bed in the middle of the covers. It was closed.
0: How do you know a closed wallet is empty, friend? What is the German word for shady? Needless to say, when police finally arrived on the scene at 6 p.m., it had been contaminated by dozens of looky-loos who had spent hours just traipsing around touching everything. Sometime after midnight on April 5th, more police, this time all the way from Munich, so, you know, the big guns, showed up at the farm. They had to ask Lorenz to put the bodies back the way he'd found them so they could take photos. I mean, this is just Keystone cops at this point. Like, I imagine the Benny Hill theme song was just playing on repeat in the background. Apparently, senior inspector George Reingruber only spent a few hours on the farm before confidently declaring it was a robbery and fucking back off to Munich, where he had more important things to do. Remember when I said it would be important later that Bavaria was a part of Germany? There were a string of politically motivated murders going on in Germany at the time, mostly because of the serious political unrest led by a group of right-wing extremists, many of whom would go on to join the Nazi party. Seems some dude named Adolf Hitler had just been named leader of what would become the Nazi party and would soon lead a failed coup on the government, for which he was jailed and written off by most as a nut on the fringe, but who would later successfully seize control of the government and commit genocide of people he didn't like. Anyway, the German police at the time felt they had bigger fish to fry and stuck a robbery label on this case as a result. The author of the Hinterkaifeck.net blog made a point that caught my eye. On this, they wrote, quote, "Plenty of money and valuables were found in the dead house. And would a burglar out for money really have struck so hatefully? Wouldn't he have taken off with the loot instead of staying and tending the cattle?" End quote. Because yes the cattle and the dog had clearly been fed and cared for in the days the family lay dead before they were discovered. Not only that, but there was evidence that someone or someones had been staying in the house while the bodies were left where they'd been slain. After the murders, one man claimed that a carpenter told him he'd been walking past the farm one night after the murders had taken place and someone emerged from the back of the property with a flashlight and then disappeared back toward the house, though this alleged carpenter never came forward himself. In fact, there's evidence that someone or someones were staying in the house or at least in the barn undetected before the family was murdered. During a search of the barn attic, a couple of hiding spots were found along with some rope used presumably to get up and down from the attic from the outside where several tiles had been removed. From the hiding spots in the attic, it was pretty clear the family could be observed working in the yard. And indeed, on March 31st, 1922, presumably a day before the family was murdered, Andreas told an acquaintance that he had been hearing strange noises coming from the attic. Also, earlier that same month, someone in the family found a newspaper none of them subscribed to in their house. And, like, sure, no one had probably heard of froggering yet, the act of living undetected in someone else's house while the people are still living in the house, but come on. First, your maid tells you her door is mysteriously opening on its own, and people are knocking on her window in the middle of the night telling her private shit about the family. Then she quits because of it, and then you hear noises coming from your attic, and you find a mysterious newspaper in your house, and you've found footprints leading to your house but not away, and you don't turn your house inside out to figure out what the hell is going on? Come on, man. Oh, also, two days before the murders, Andreas told at least two people, including Lorenz Schiebebauer, that his key had gone missing. The key to his house... And that should be enough, right? But it's not. In addition to all of those things that should have sent the family packing for the hills, one or two mornings before the murders, Andreas apparently discovered his engine house had been broken into, and there it appeared to have been an attempted break-in to another room off the barn. Look. I'm not one to victim blame, and there's never any excuse for murder, but Jesus Christ, dude, you practically got a love letter from the killer or killers saying they were going to kill you. So, based on everything that could be gleaned from the contaminated crime scene, police believed it likely went like this. The killer, or killers, let themselves into their hiding place a day or so before the murders and waited for the family to go to bed. Once the family was in for the night, they untied one of the cows in order to cause a commotion and draw someone to the barn. Andreas was probably the first to go investigate. When he didn't return, his wife likely followed. When she didn't come back, Victoria probably went to check. And when her mama didn't return, poor little Cazilla, who was only seven years old, probably went looking for her and met the same fate as her mother and grandma and grandpa and or father, Andreas. After that, the killer or killers went into the house and killed Maria Baumgartner, the new maid who was just going to bed after literally her very first day on the job. Lastly, they murdered little baby Joseph in his pram. Each victim had been struck with a mattock, a pickaxe used for digging and chopping. The elder Kazilla had been struck seven times and had also been strangled. The injuries were horrific, to say the least, and the only good thing that can be said is that most of the victims likely died instantly and so didn't suffer for too long. Though one wonders why the older Kazilla was strangled if she died instantly. The same cannot be said for the younger Kazilla, Victoria's seven-year-old daughter, who was found with clumps of her own hair in her hands, which she likely tore out in anguish as she lay dying for what the autopsy report said was likely several hours. Incidentally, Kazilla was known to pull her own hair out, which is generally a symptom of severe anxiety, and some believe that she may have been suffering some kind of abuse, most likely at the hands of Andreas, her grandfather, who, remember, was possibly her father, and who may have been abusing her the same way he abused his own daughter. I'm not usually the one to spread rumors about the dead, but you know what? Fuck that guy. Now, here's something that's going to make you want to pull the covers over your head for at least a few days. The victims' heads were intentionally severed by the doctor at the autopsy and sent to the Pathological Institute of the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich. Apparently, this was common practice with victims of severe skull injuries so that precise information could be gleaned. Why that information couldn't be gleaned with the head still attached to the body— I have no idea. Anything to save on shipping, I guess. Meanwhile, the scene was thoroughly searched for the weapon, assuming, of course, one of the dozens of people who walked around the crime scene hadn't taken it as a souvenir. A pickaxe was found in the barn, but it had no blood on it, although it was suggested that that was because the cows had licked the blood off. Hold on, I'm going to go vomit. I'm back. It wasn't until nearly a year later that the actual murder weapon was found while the house and barn were being demolished because honestly, who wants to live in a place like that? Even before the family was murdered, the juju in that house was off. It seems another pickaxe-like tool called a root hoe, who you call in a root hoe, was found in a hiding place in the barn attic. A screw that attached the tool to its handle was protruding out and was determined to be the thing that caused pencil-sized round holes in the victim's skulls. After extensive searching, there was no clear evidence linking anyone to the murders, so the local police did the next most logical thing and shipped the severed heads to psychics. Apparently, the use of psychics and clairvoyance was common in Germany at this time. Don’t forget, this was a time of growing spiritualism and interest in the occult in Germany with these practices often used to justify racism and ethnic cleansing. The only thing this venture produced was this prediction from one of the psychics. "There’s something shy about
1: him. Ugly smile. If I’m younger, furrow in his face." Something piercing in his eyes Can
0: pretend a lot A killer who is shy and can pretend a lot? Wow, what a revelation Tell me more Actually, no, don't I have more important things to get to And not a lot of time Incidentally, the heads were lost Sometime during World War II so, with no leads and a box of severed heads just getting shipped around willy-nilly, police had no idea who the killer or killers might have been, even as the list of possible suspects began to grow. So, if anyone was going to go on a murder spree at the Kaifek farm, one would have thought it would have been Andreas Gruber himself, what with the history of rape, incest, and general disgustingness. But obviously, Andreas didn't bludgeon his entire family and then himself. Bludgeoning is not usually a method of suicide. So, of course, the next best suspect was the jilted lover, Lorenz Schiebebauer. Not only was he the one who got Andreas and Victoria sent off to prison for incest, but he had also wanted to marry Victoria, which Andreas forbid, and he was thought to be the father of Victoria's second child, Joseph there had been rumors that Victoria demanded money from Lorenz for the care of their child. Plus, he's the one who found their bodies, and his behavior wasn't exactly normal during their search. Apparently, when no one had emerged from the house in days, he was reported to have said,
2: Nothing is stirring anymore. Either they hanged themselves over killed.
0: I mean, okay. Or maybe they took a vacation or something? He also seemed completely unfazed by the dead bodies. When asked why he didn't seem scared at all discovering the bodies, he replied,
2: I was so excited that I stopped thinking because I assumed that my boy must be starving. Even though it certainly wasn't my own child, I felt sorry for the child and wanted to see it at once. In the excitement I was in, I would have taken on anyone who stood in my way.
0: My boy who, quote, certainly wasn't my child? Pick a tune here, Lawrence. Do you believe him to be yours or not? Just another confusing behavior to add to this pile, I suppose. The police also asked him how on earth he'd gotten into the house to discover the maid and the baby when the doors had been locked. And Andreas had said his key was stolen, to which he replied...
2: That is a mystery to me, because I know for sure that there is only one key.
0: And I will say, if you did steal the key and use it to get into the house, one would hope you would have come up with a better story than, it's a mystery to me. And in fact, after questioning him, police didn't think Lorenz was the culprit. Mostly, it seemed, just because he cried a lot during his interrogation. To which I present you Exhibit A, Ashton Sachs, who wept profusely and gave a eulogy at his parents' funeral, and then a month later was like, no, I totally did it. And don't forget, the psychic said the killer would be good at pretending. And then there was Joseph Thaler and his brother who had been creeping around the former maid's window and knew way too much about the Gruber family and their secrets. However, in 1925, a prosecutor claimed that after various investigations, the Thayer brothers had been cleared. As far as I can tell, he didn't provide any details. In 1951, a woman named Cresencia Mayer made a deathbed confession that her brothers, Adolph and Anton, had committed the murders. And while Adolf had, in fact, been a suspect at the time of the investigation, because he was also a suspect in another mass murder of nine people in 1921, there was no evidence linking him to Hinterkaifeck. And it turns out, Crescentia was prone to making up stories. There was also Charles and Anton Bickler, two known thieves in the area who had been temporarily employed at Hinterkaifeck. Former maid Krizenz Riga claimed Anton came to her bedroom window several times, begging her to have sex with him. She declined because A, she heard he was a thief, and B, seriously? He apparently made some violent threats after Riga turned him down. Also, that was a busy bedroom window. Riga also claimed Anton made threats against the Gruber family because they had money. Allegedly, he said that people who have so much money and suffer no more than burnt bread should all be killed. And when Riga told this to her employers, they again ignored her and Mrs. Gruber said, If only someone will eat you because you're so scared. Yikes, lady. Yikes. The brothers had an alibi for the time of the murders and investigators cleared them. And that was pretty much where everything was left for nearly a hundred years, until in 2018, author Bill James suggested in his book, The Man on the Train, that the same serial killer who'd killed over a hundred people in the United States and Canada between 1897 and 1912, and who was also likely, in his opinion, to have been responsible for the Villisca Axe murders, which I covered in season one, could have also been responsible for the Hinterkaifeck murders. The man's name was James Mueller, and was indeed a German immigrant who could have easily caught a steamer back to Germany after his spree in the US. German officials have never investigated this lead. According to the Hinterkaifeck.net blog, it turns out that in 2007, 15 prospective detectives at the University of Applied Sciences for Administration and Law near Munich chose the Hinterkaifeck murders to study for their final thesis. After studying the case, the students all independently came up with the same suspect because, quote, There is too much that speaks against him, hardly anything that exonerates him. Whether the killer acted entirely alone or had an accessory or confidant does not make any changes in the execution of the crime and the identity of the culprit. One name will always come to our minds in the context of this multiple murder at Hinterkaifeck. End quote. But here's the kicker. They won't release the name of their suspected suspect out of respect for the living descendants of the Gruber family. To which I have the following questions. A. How could there be any living descendants? No one was left. Who could it possibly be, an eighth cousin four times removed? And B, wouldn't it be more respectful to the family to tell them who was responsible for killing their predecessors? Like, wouldn't you want to know who killed your great-great-uncle's sister's cousin? I mean, sure, Andreas Gruber was a piece of shit, but still, wouldn't you want to know? But it looks like we never will. If you're asking me, I'd put my money on the nosy neighbor in the barn with the root hoe. I'm not one to give away my theories this decidedly, but after drawing out a literal mind map on this twisted story to understand it and relay it back to you, I deserve to take a stance. And a nap. Next time on Strange and Unexplained... What would you do if you awoke one morning to find you were dead? We'll meet some unlucky folks with Cotard syndrome who died and lived to tell the tale. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a topic you'd like to have covered, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our audio mixer and engineer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Andrea Jones-Sojola, Ryan Garcia, and Luther Creek. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Follow us on Instagram. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook group to join in the conversation.